Welcome to this week's message from a new church. For more information, or if you'd like to contact us, please visit our website, newchurch.nz. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy this message. Thank you, Christy. Good morning, everyone. Kia ora koutou. Hope you guys are all doing well. Are you well? Hopefully we're all healed now after that amazing worship time and faith declaration filled with hope. Um, just want to say a, a new, uh, just another welcome to any newcomer or visitor. You are our guest today and just hope that you're made to feel welcome here. Um, just rock over to the cafe at the at this end of the service and say, hey, it's my first time. And they'll shout you to an incredible coffee or a hot chocolate. And um, so, yeah, welcome. Welcome to everyone that's watching us online. Um, you are so valuable. So thank you so much for tuning in. I just really pray that God will do some incredible things through um, the, the message and the service today as well. So who loves church? 20 people. <laughs> Everyone else just doesn't want to be here right now, maybe. Um, I'm really excited because we're starting a new sermon series all about passion for God's house. And before I go any further, I just want to apologize. I don't think the notes are, um, are live this morning. Um, if that's the case, once we get home this afternoon, I'll make them live so you can just look at that and say, oh, they are? Whew. I was stressing out a little bit during the worship time and being a bit distracted about that. So, yeah, um, on the Bible app, on the events, you can find all our notes there. Um, And hopefully the real Christians here are still taking notes and stuff as well. (laughs) Anyway, um, I'm I'm just really excited about the series because we're living in a time, like I've been a Christian most of my life, but it just seems in recent years that there is such an attack against the house of God, which is the church. And the media is using every opportunity they can to dig up dirt, to discredit, to demonize the church. And um, and that's sort of no surprise because we know that the whole world system is run by um, godlessness, um, principalities and powers, but there's also a, a movement called the deconstruction movement that's gaining popularity of people that are sort of pulling apart their faith and not really putting it back together again. So it's not just from um, who we, you know, the, the devil that's trying to discredit church. You don't have to spend too much time with people that have deconstructed their faith, and pretty quickly they will start also um, pulling down the church and saying how much the church is bad and evil, although they still love God. So um, we're living in that time. Also, um, back in my childhood, if you were a regular church attender, you would come to church like every Sunday, twice on a Sunday, unless you were sick or on holiday. That's what you just did because you were committed. Now, um, even though people are still saying they love God, church attendance and committed church attendance um, is going down to like once a month as usual. So there is something that's that's happening in the world, and I don't think it's of God, and I don't think it's good, uh, because the church is the vehicle, I believe, in which we're seeing God do incredible things, and the church needs to be strong and bright. Um, And if no one's coming along to church, then we're in a little bit of trouble. So my motivation for this sermon series is twofold. Firstly, that we will have an understanding of how how much God loves the church, that we are the church, um, that it's so important to be involved in what God is doing, that church is plan A of what God wants to do, and he hasn't got a plan B. But also, as a little bit of an in-house message, we're growing as a church, uh, which means more people are coming along, which is awesome, but we're not necessarily growing in our service teams, which means people are just working a lot harder uh, because a lot more people are coming along, especially in kids' ministry, um, and we aren't growing our service teams. So a little bit of an in-house encouragement from the front this morning as well. 
of getting people stuck in and, and volunteering and, and serving the house of God, which is a great call. So let's just jump into John 2, verse 17. Um, Jesus has just been really upset with the people that are using the house of God as a place to rip people off and a place to be greedy and make money. And he's really upset about it. So he overturns all the money changing tables and he, and, he, and he drives them all out, makes a whip. So man, that would have been an incredible, spectacular thing to, say, to see. And the disciples are thinking, wow, this is pretty significant. Then they say something in John two seventeen. Then the disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures Passion for God's house will consume me. Passion for God's house or a heart for God's house or being on fire for God's house will consume me. And that was something that um, David said um, or wrote in Psalm 69. And we all know that he had a great passion for the house of God. I've always found this interesting because you would have thought that they would have thought, wow, like passion for God, like Jesus had a passion for God and it's consumed him. Um, they didn't actually say anything about Jesus' passion for God. They said passion for God's house. I believe that passion for God and passion for God's house is intrinsically, intrinsically entwined that you can't see or you couldn't separate the two. So I do think the passion for God's house will also show our passion for God. That's a little bit controversial, just throwing it out there um, because I happen to believe in it. So what is, what is the house of God? So passion for God's house. What, what does that actually mean? What, what, what is the house of God? So what we're going to be doing this morning is just sort of traveling through the Bible right from the very beginning and looking at all the places that is described as the house of God in the Bible and looking at the characteristics of each one and then compiling a little bit of a list of exactly what to expect about the house of God today. So I'm really excited about this. All the verses will be up on screen. I've done a lot of research into this, so I've worked hard. So you've got to listen. Um, make my time worthwhile. So Genesis 28, verse 16 to 17, which is the very first mention of the house of God in the Bible. And it's actually not what you'd really think. You'd think the first mention is like a, a temple or a building, but it wasn't like that at all. Jacob is on, he's running from um, because he's deceived his brother, he's deceived his parents, he's, he's fleeing for his life, and he's, he's running away, he's like run away from everything he knows, he doesn't know what's going to happen in his future, he spends the night sleeping on a rock in the desert, and he has this incredible vision of um, angels descending and going up and down um, with a stairway or a ladder to heaven, and God speaks destiny and purpose into his life, he has this real and incredible supernatural encounter. And this is what it says in Genesis 28, verse 16 and 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. But he was also afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. It is none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. The first time we see this phrase mentioned and the first time we see something in the Bible, it sets the precedent, it sets the tone for whenever that theme is, is, is shared after that, we go back to that as our foundation. So we need to, we can understand a lot about the house of God from this verse. What are the characteristics? It's a physical place that is positioned on the edge of both heaven and earth. 
He said, this is the house of God. This is where he was in a physical location, but he had this incredible encounter of heaven and what God was doing and angelic activity. It says, this is the gateway. Or other translations says, this is the gate to heaven. What is a gate? It's like when you're going through one room or one location and there is a gate. That gate is on the edge of where you are. And that gate is also on the edge of where you are going. A gate is something that's on the edge of two locations. And I've never really thought about this before. And and nothing else in the Bible has talked about a gate of heaven like the house of God. Have we ever realized that what we are doing today, we are on the edge of both heaven and earth. As we gather together, there is angelic activity. Maybe we don't realize it. There is an open heaven over us. The the house of God, the church of God, the people of God, we straddle two worlds right here, the physical realm and the spiritual realm. Do we understand that? Jacob understood that and he says, this is none other than the house of God, an incredible characteristic of what we do and why we meet together. We're a gateway to heaven. Are we expecting about that? Uh, are we understanding that incredible truth? So some characteristics, place where angelic activity happens, a place where God speaks and births vision, hope, and purpose. He gave Jacob a vision and a future that happens in the house of God and a physical place that is positioned on the edge of both heaven and earth. Then we, um, we come to the, the Israelites, and they're rescued out of slavery hundreds of years in Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land, They get it wrong a little bit, so they spend 40 years in the wilderness. But God says something to them. God wants to live among them and wants to be the central focal point of their lives, that that he is the very center of all they do. So he asks the Israelites and Moses to build a place of dwelling for him. In Exodus 25, verse 8 and 9, Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary. So what is a holy sanctuary? Is it just another name for a dwelling place or a house? So I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle. So whenever you see this word tabernacle, it just means tent or a place to live in. And its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. And so the the Israelites set up this tent. Uh, It it can move whenever God wanted to move. They they packed it up and they moved. But that was the place where the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the very presence of And the glory of God resided. It was in the middle of the tent. Another characteristic or some characteristics of the house of God. It's a place where the presence of God is. It's a place where people get right with God. So people would come to the tabernacle and they would want to get their lives right with God. And under the old covenant, they had to use uh, temporary means because no animals could cover over completely sin. That was what Jesus did, but they had to cover over their sin temporarily. That meant that something innocent had to die. So they would come to the tabernacle, to the house of God to get right with God. And the, the the priests would help them. So priests in the temple of God, they not only ministered to God on behalf of the people, they helped and served the people connect with God, get right with God, surrender their lives to God. And the tabernacle, the house of God, was set up in the middle of the population of of, of the Israelites. It was meant to be a big part of what they did, the very focal point. So there's some characteristics that we can learn from the tabernacle of Moses. And then the Israelites go into the promised land. 
and they carry the tabernacle with them and they set it up still in the promised land. They're no longer wandering around the desert. God has taken them or led them to their promised land and eventually it, it, it sort of ends up, they, they erect it permanently in a place called Shiloh. And it's there for 350 years. People continue to come and, and priests help them connect with God. And then God judges Israel. The, the Ark of the Covenant gets stolen out of the temple of the Lord. So they've got a place where the presence of God is supposed to be, but there's no longer the presence of God in the house of God anymore. And, uh, I'm not going to go into any details, but supernaturally, miraculously, the Ark of the Covenant is returned, which symbolizes the presence of God back to Israel. But a very interesting thing takes place. And I don't quite understand why this happens, but it happens. Instead, David, instead of returning the Ark of the Covenant back to the tabernacle that's in Shiloh, he sets up a new tent. He sets up a new tabernacle in Jerusalem. And if any of you scholars out there have got a reason why that is, then email me afterwards or talk to me. I'd like to know. Um, and that place, he, he, he loves worship. He understands the power of worship and, and presenting to God sacrifices of praise. He sets up priests to, to go on a roster 24-7 worship. So for a time in Israel, there are now two houses of God. Is the house of God that is still a place where there is a hub for community and there is still hustle and bustle and there's administration, but the presence of God is no longer there. And there is a new house of God that David sets up and it's all about worship and sacrifice and, and giving to God everything. And that's where the presence of God is. It's an int interesting little bit of an aside here, but which of those two tabernacles or houses of God do our churches mostly resemble? A place where we, we do stuff and we're organizing things and we're sort of helping people out and it's a bit of a community hub, but there's really no glory of God. Or a house of God where people come and they know it's all about lordship and surrender and the presence and the power of God. Interesting, eh? So what is some characteristics of this house of God, which is called the Tabernacle of David? Before I talk about the characteristics, let's just read some verses specifically about this, this time in history. Psalm 27.4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Psalm 122 verse 1. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 84.10, which wasn't written by David, it's the sons of Korah, and they're worshippers. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. There was such a passion to go to the house of God. Some things we can learn here. It's a place where people gather to worship and seek the Lord. It's not so much a community hub First and foremost, it's a place where people understand that the presence of God is there and they want to get right with God. They want to worship God. Also, a characteristic is a place where people get excited about going to. It's like, come on, guys, let's go to the house of the Lord. I can't wait. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the rich. It's a place where people are so excited about coming to and getting 
stuck in and, and, and planted in. Are we that excited about church? Did we, we wake up this morning at six o'clock when it was like, I can't wait to go to the prayer meeting this morning. Did we ring up our mates? Hey, I can't wait to go to church. Do you want to come with me? I'm on, I'm on cafe. I, I'd rather be a volunteer in our cafe team than be paid $50, $50 an hour at, at Bocky Boot. No, that's just wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> so eventually, it's no longer a tent anymore, but under Solomon, they make a, a proper permanent building makes it made of bricks and stone. And that's there for a while, but that's destroyed, and then it's rebuilt, and it was the rebuilt temple of Solomon that was around in Jesus' time. And that was still called the house of God. That was still called the temple of God. And we know this from what Jesus said about it in Luke 2, verse 49. Um, His parents lose him, and then they find him in the temple of the Lord. And this is what he says, Why were you searching for me, he said? Didn't you know I had to be about or had to be in my father's house. So Jesus called the rebuilt temple, even though it was made of bricks, this is my father's house. And he was asking questions and he was learning and he was teaching them. In Matthew 21, 13, it says, it is written, he said to them, and this was about when he cast out the the money changes, my house will be called a house of prayer, talking about the temple of the Lord. But you are making it a den of robbers. A couple of other um, characteristics. It's a place of teaching and learning about God. It's also a place of prayer and communion with the Lord. One of the reasons why we've, we've, we've upped the level a little bit of prayer because like, we can't have a church without prayer. So um, please come along early on a Sunday morning. It's, it's awesome here before the service. And then the church happens. The day of Pentecost happens, which uh, we, we celebrate that next week. Um, we've got the amazing Hannah Squire is going to be talking about her experiences when she went on a missions trip. It's going to be awesome. Um, but on the day of Pentecost, the church is, church is birthed. And then all of a sudden, all of these believers, they're still meeting in the temple courts each day. But they also just love hanging out together. So they're meeting in, in homes and places like that. Um, so we understand it's no longer really a place or a building that's made of bricks dead things, it's a people. Um, and and how, do we, how do we come to that conclusion? There's a whole lot uh, of verses, but First Timothy three fourteen to 15 says, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Other translations say in God's house, but I love the New Living Translation. It says in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So now we see that the house of God is no longer just a house where people gather, but a household of people who gather. And that's a little bit, uh, hear me out again because that's very significant. It's no longer just a house where people gather. So we call this place church. We sort of understand it's a location. It's no longer a house where people gather, but a household of of people who gather. In 1 Peter 2.5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So the people who listened to the New Testament letters as they were written, uh, read out to the church, 
their only framework was the Old Testament. So when they hear about a temple, they're always thinking of like proper bricks and stuff. But now they're teaching that it's, it's no longer really bricks. But you are the bricks. You are the living stones that we are made up. We, we make up the church now. It's, we're all living and we're all different shapes and sizes. And there is a place for every single one of us. God doesn't necessarily reside in a physical building. You are the building and you are alive. So it's no, church is no longer an organization. It's an organism that has organization. In 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16, it says, Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Sort of like another reference to the house of God. And other, other translations say, don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? And, and I think us in our Western lives, we think, well, that's just me as an individual. I carry the Holy Spirit around with me, and that's true. But individualism was not a part of the, the, the culture that the Bible was written in. When they heard stuff like that, it was always meant to be as a community focus, as a family. So when people get together, that's the temple of God as well. And we carry the very presence of God with us, another characteristic of the house of God, a place that carries the Spirit of God. Whew, it's, a, it's a little bit of Bible teaching for you guys this morning, eh? Traveling right through the Bible, understanding that the house of God is something amazing and, and specific. And, and what we got to understand, too, is, is all of these characteristics of the house of God, every single one of them doesn't mean that the, the other or the previous description is just null and void now and superseded and obsolete and doesn't matter anymore. What we need to understand is to look at all the characteristics of what the house of God was and, and, and what described the house of God right throughout the Bible, and then we can grab all of those characteristics together and understand without any shadow of a doubt that this is what the house of God is, and this is what the house of God does, and this is what the characteristics of the house of God should be. So, a place that is positioned on the edge of both heaven and earth a place where there is angelic activity, where there is an open heaven, a place where God speaks and births vision and hope and purpose, a place where the presence of God is, a place where people get right with God, a place where priests minister to God and assist people connect with God by serving them, a place that is central in the life of the people, a place where people gather to worship and see God, a place where people are excited about going to and participating in, a place of teaching and learning about God, a place of prayer, communion with the Lord, no longer just a house where people gather, but a household of people who gather, a family and a place place that carries the very spirit of the Lord. That is church. That is the house of God. And that is what we are a part of. And that is who we are. Somebody give the Lord a huge amen for that because that's exciting. One thing I'm forever indebted to my mum and dad who have passed on now is um, like leaving a a legacy. And so often we think of leaving an inheritance as, as monetary. But I'm so thankful that both my mum and dad left an inheritance and a legacy to me of how important and how beautiful the house of God is, the church of God is. And and if we're going to neglect anything, we dare not neglect meeting together and being committed into the house of God because that's truly the place where God does incredible things, the very gateway to heaven. 
the gate between heaven and earth. And I love all of that. And I'm so excited about the church. Who's a a little bit more excited about the church now? Okay. That's sort of doubled since the beginning. So we've got about 50% of the people now. I want to talk about priests. And remember when the, the early church was... Um, listening to the New Testament letters and learning about God, their only real framework was the history that they had um, in, in the Old Testament and all the Old Testament stories. So again, 1 Peter 2, 5, we read it before, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So that when they heard that, they were imagining the tabernacle and all the sacrifices and the priests that were there ministering to God and and helping people connect with God. So they were were understanding all of that imagery, but the the New Testament, they were saying, well, it's no longer like that. It's a You are the church. You are living stones. You are a holy priesthood. And then in that same chapter, going down to verse 9, for you are a chosen people, you are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for He called you out of the darkness into His wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Again, they're imagining the Old Testament because that's the whole framework of their understanding. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests. So they are thinking, wait a second. Priests were the, 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 the people that were, were very privileged in, under the old system in the Old Testament. Their, their, their call was to minister to God on behalf of the people, worship the Lord. But also their call was to help the people bring sacrifices to the Lord. Their call was help the people connect and get right with God, those were who priests were, and the Bible is teaching that the priests are no longer back then. You are priests. That is your great call that every single one of us now, because of what Jesus has done, and church is no longer a building made of stone, but we are the living stones. We are all called to be priests. What does that mean? And what is the mandate and responsibility and call on every single one of us? to minister to God and worship on behalf of everyone and also to help people connect to God, get right with God, come close to God by serving them. What is the great call? Service. What is the great call if we're called to be priests? Where do the priests serve? Serve in the house of God. What is our great call judged on Scripture that every single one of us, our responsibility and great call is to minister to God in the house of God and to help others connect with God in the house of God. Which means that if we're just coming to church and we're just enjoying the service and enjoying the atmosphere and enjoying the fellowship, but not serving others, then we are not fulfilling our call as New Testament priests of God. Something is a little bit off. Matthew 20, verse 25 to 28. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over the people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them, but among you it will be different. 
Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first among you must become your slave. Verse 28, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. So the call to serve, just a few points about that. Number one, this is our great call, the call to serve. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, he was an absolute radical. He was amazing. He said something along the lines of the need constitutes a call, which means if we see a need, we don't have to have necessarily a supernatural encounter with God where God says, thus sayest saith the Lord, Simon, you are to do that. If there is a great need there, then we are naturally called to do that. And in some way, that makes sense because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest makes the, harvest makes the call essential and necessary, even though we don't sort of necessarily feel called to it. So some people say, well, I'm not called to do this, and I'm not called to do that, but if there is a great need... Then, then we need to maybe reevaluate that. I'm not saying I agree with that, that concept or not, because some people are really anti that, because there is need everywhere. Um, but sometimes I think we use the call of God as an excuse and saying, well, I'm not called to do that. I'm not led to do that. Take kids' ministry, for example. Just putting that out there. It's like, oh, I don't like kids. Like, I'm not called. Oh, Jesus liked kids. If, if, are you a Christian? Do you love Jesus? If you love Jesus, you're going to love what Jesus loves, and he loves kids. <laughs> Secondly, serving creates a sense of belonging. There's a, a lot of uh, research in, into this. And so many people, and I've heard them say, well, Simon, I just don't feel like I belong in church. And, and so many people feel that, um, but they've done a lot of research, and, and the evidence is, is quite clear that one of the greatest ways of actually feeling like you belong is start to serve other people, uh, which is quite amazing. And, and, and that makes sense when you start to think about food. We all love food. You, you go out for a restaurant meal, right? Uh, I know I've shared this before, but I think it's a really good analogy. You go to a restaurant, you pay for a service, and you want that service to be good, Right? Uh, you don't expect to be go into the kitchen and, and, and help pay and, and make, sorry, make the meal because you're paying for the meal. You sit down in your seat and you don't really want to go and chat to other people around you because, like, I'm not here to talk to people. I'm here to enjoy my food. I'm here to enjoy the service. And, and you pay for a service, but you actually don't really feel like you belong in that restaurant because it's providing a service. Par- uh, parallel that or contrast that to a family meal when you've invited someone over for lunch. Like everyone gets involved. The person that's invited usually wants to bring someone and wants to contribute. And if your, your meals are anything like ours, the person that's been invited is like, well, can, can I help out? Can I go and do the dishes? Can I help serve? Like everyone wants to get involved and everyone wants to serve. And you feel like it's a lot more intimate than getting to know the waitress because they only want to get tipped or they want uh, money. They, they're just doing something. They're paying for it. The family meal is so much different because there's community and there's fellowship and you feel like you're a part of the family. That's exactly what church is like. It's not somewhere where we go and we enjoy and we just pay our tithes and we expect a great service. It's a place that's like the family meal. You invite people and you're friendly and you want to get to know them and you want to do life together and you really want to know their heart. 
and people get stuck in and people contribute and they don't want anything for it. They just, they just want to be a part of what's happening. That is family. Church is a family. It's not a service. We call it a service, the church service, but really it's the church family. It's the church whanau. So I, I want to say, if you don't feel quite like you fit in, get stuck in and help somewhere. And they actually, um, I was... I was Tossing up whether to say this or not, as far as feeling like a sense of belonging and a purpose, getting involved in a service team actually is more successful or more effective than getting involved in a connect group because a lot of connect groups are usually very inward focused, but when you serve, you serve outward. Um, and, and studies show that when you serve outward, you feel a, great, a, a greater sense of belonging. So three, we are blessed when we serve. So the Bible says it is better to give than to receive. We know that. And I would say that it's better to serve than to be served. And so, again, secular studies, I don't like using that word, but studies that are outside of the framework of Christianity, they have proven beyond any shadow of a doubt, and you can Google this, uh, what are the benefits that have been proven of serving others? Number one, it lowers blood pressure. It has been proved to lower blood pressure when you help and serve others. It lowers stress levels. It reduces anxiety and depression. Something happens in the brain's mesolimbic pathway that is unique to giving and serving others. It doesn't happen any other time, but something happens in our brain when we serve others. And God set that up, obviously. It increases self-esteem and a sense of purpose. This is our great call, the call to serve. Serving creates a sense of belonging. We are blessed when we serve, and serving belongs, or begins, sorry, in the house of God first. So uh, if you are very outward focused and community minded, it's like, well, you know, I, I want to serve out in the community. And, and absolutely, we all should be doing that. But I do believe that serving begins with our own family first. Like if, if you are in your own family or your kids and you're always out serving others, but you never help your parents at home, something is a little bit off there. So serving begins in the house of God first. First Peter 4.17 um, the theme, hopefully you'll understand the theme, for the time has come for judgment and it must begin with God's household or it must begin with the house of God, like first. And if judgment begins with us, what a terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news. So everything that happens, it happens here first. Why? Because the house of God should be the central focal point for our lives as a community, just like the tabernacle was in the Old Testament, just like the gathering together of God's people was so big in the, in the lives of the, the early church. So just four points. This is our great call, the call to serve. Serving creates a sense of belonging. We are blessed when we serve. Serving begins in the house of God first. And everyone's just saying, wow, that's just so amazing. Is there any way I could actually serve in the house of God? Well, just so happens that someone left a whole lot of flyers on your chairs this morning, <laughs> which shows you a whole lot of places where you can serve. And... Um, I, I may have said this before, we're, we're growing larger as a church, but not necessarily larger in our service teams. Christy's overseeing the service teams now, and she's doing a great job, but there are some huge big gaps, and, and we need to sort of gather together um, as people and find where we can serve. So a couple of areas, the car park team, which is almost non-existent now. I think Ted Stone and Luke are the only couple that are faithfully out there um, most Sundays and, and helping. What, we, what we've done is we've gone from two services to one service, which means there are a whole lot more cars 
on the place. So just for safety's sake, we need to actually coordinate the car park somehow, but it's so much further, so much more than that. Do you know on the car park team, you are the very first person or the face that people see. You're the very first um, impression of the house of God that people come to. And if you're smiling and happy and welcoming, that is a huge ministry. Do you know that statistics prove that most people will decide to come to church within the first 10 minutes of actually coming to a church? Which really um, is surprising because you think, well, is it the worship? Is it the preaching? Not necessarily. It's the the feeling of community and and, and the, the warm feeling of welcome that happens. So don't you understand that Probably the most significant and effective ministry on a Sunday is not what I'm doing for getting new people coming along and people that don't know God. It's the car park person who's the very first impression of what people get when they come to church. Get your pens out, start scribbling on that. Like, I want to join the car park team. Like, I don't want to burn Ted Ted Stone out or Luke out. Like, it's an easy, like, I would be on the, on the car park team. I did it for um, Julia Grace. That was so exciting. Like, just, just smiling to someone saying, welcome. That is so awesome. And it's, it's all of us playing a part. Kids ministry is another huge, huge need that we have. Now, I had a meeting with um, Larissa. She's our kids pastor. And, and she was pretty upset this week because kids ministry is growing so much. And it's so exciting. But we haven't got a lot of, a lot of kids church leaders at all, if and we need more. Like I said, okay, uh, Larissa, how many kids' church leaders do we need? And she goes, well, we're desperate for six more. Um, that'll go on a roster like once a month, um, but we really need wouldn't. And I've been praying for this, that on, when I see her on Thursday, whenever she comes back, she's away this, this weekend, that I'll say, hey, Larissa, you know like you were praying for six more kids' church? Well, something amazing happened on Sunday. Here's your six volunteers. So a little bit of a caveat for that. You will be trained. Um, we, 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 need to have, we need to value kids, and we do, and, and make it a safe place. So there's going to be some police fitting. That's no big deal. But we need, like, people say, like, I'm doing everything wrong as a pastor this morning because they say, well, pastors, when they're talking about serving in the house of God, don't ever say it's a need. Like, say it's a mission from God and make it, like, real exciting. Like, it's a need, guys. We need people to come and to say, like, once a month. Is that such a big deal? Uh, Christy and I, we belong to the Dog Training Association. Like I had this, I had this thought um, about having a dog and the dog would look up to me and I would be his master and he would just like worship the ground I walk. And Like my dog doesn't at all. Like the true master is Christy. So I tried to do dog training and I just like get anxious and like just want to walk away because it's so embarrassing. But Christy's like the true uh, like dog trainer. So, but I still go along and support and just hang out on a, on a Wednesday night. Um, but at Otaika uh, Sports Grounds, there's some community group and they're doing stuff in, in, in one group. There's like heaps of sports teams and they're all there. And there's like two lots of uh, dog training like t- courses going at the same time. No one's paid for those. It's just people getting involved in community and, and getting stuck in. And, and, and if, if, if people can do that that don't even know God, that don't understand how powerful the house of God is, then, then I don't think it's a big ask or a heavy ask for me to say, hey, serve once a month, like for two hours. That's not a big ask. So I'm imploring and asking and begging and pleading 
that we would get a heart for the house of God, that we would understand our great call as priests. And we would say, yes, sign me up, count me in. Lastly, and I'm out of time, really understanding something new for the first time, looking at the, the purpose of Renew Church. And we've got a great purpose statement, um, pursuing God's heart, celebrating God's goodness, equipping God's people, um, demonstrating God's love and, and, and changing God's world. Like That's an incredible purpose statement. But really when you think about it, that's nothing to do with the why. All of those statements are about the what. It's like, okay, this is what we do. We, 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 we celebrate God's goodness. We, we want to transform. Like It's all about the what. It's not really about the why. And most organizations and, and most people, um, especially with companies, they'll be quick to tell you the what, but most successful companies and organizations, they will understand the why. Because when you've got a strong why and when people grab a hold of the why, it's not so much the how and the what that's important. We, that just sort of takes care of itself. It's the, this is why we do what we do and the why is so important and the why is worth giving everything I, I have and, and I'm just going to be sold out for the why. So the why of Renew Church is sort of a question that we haven't really asked. We, we know a lot about the what. What is the why? Um, so in my thinking and praying last couple of weeks, this is what I think it is. I truly believe that the church is God's vehicle for seeing his plans fulfilled on planet Earth. It's like we're not the end destination. We are the vehicle, like the war movies when they're in a plane and they're just about to jump out of a plane to do their mission and, and, and the captain's sort of talking to them and encouraging them and they're getting ready and they know what they've got to do, but they're, they're actually going to the mission field. That's what the church is. That is the vehicle to see God's purpose, purposes fulfilled. Because God's great last instruction on planet Earth, this is Jesus before he ascended to the heaven, was go and make disciples. And the church is the greatest disciple-making factory on the planet. Why is that? Because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he turned to his followers and he said, you are the light of the world. You are my plan A. If you look at the, the, the phrasing of that verse, it's you and you alone. Like The church is God's great plan A. Like there is no plan B. And, and people can sort of think, well, I've got this organization. I can do this by myself. And, and those things aren't wrong. And, but first and foremost, the church is what God planted on the day of Pentecost. We are it. We are his plan A. Nothing else. And no one else has got that mandate and got that anointing upon us, upon it, than, than we have. We are truly the gateway between earth and heaven. And if we can grab that revelation to be like, this is amazing. How can I not be a part of it? Because God invites us into a family and family spends time together. And because we and we alone are the light of the world. We're Jesus' plan A. Let's all stand up, please. Thanks so much for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. To contact us or to find out what's happening at our church, please check out our website, renewchurch.nz.